look with us. We're in the eighth chapter of the book of Romans. Um, been looking down through this chapter, got down, I think, to about verse 32, 33 last time. But let's review just for a, a minute. Uh, I believe what Leah said, very fitting with the, the book of Romans to this point. What we've seen through this book, to, I guess to break it down as, as simple as you could make it, we've seen that salvation has nothing to do with man, but is indeed a complete work of God. Up to this point, and you know, you think about the, the book uh, uh, as a whole. You're going to start to read the book. You're going to start in Genesis. You're going to read about the creation in the beginning. And immediately after the creation, you come to Genesis chapter 3. There's man in the garden. And what happens immediately? Man falls in sin. Now there is where man is. And that's where the book of Romans starts. With man fallen, depraved, deceived, and hopelessly lost in sin. That's where, not just me, mankind as a whole was there in that place with no hope because he had sinned and broken the law of God. He had no means to obtain righteousness. And so God, from the outside, sent His Son to be our righteousness, to be our substitute in judgment, to bear the punishment of our law-breaking, and for Him to be our substitute in righteousness as well, that God would impute, would put on our account the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. So God, outside of man, without man's help, without man's working, and without man's intervention, God provided a means for us to be righteous in His sight and for our sins to be done away with. Now this salvation that man receives, there's no work to be done in order for man to receive this. It's not, well, I have to say this many words, I have to do this many good deeds, I have to go to church this many times. When you bring it down to a level that, that simple, people would, would say, yeah, you're right, you don't have to do those things. And yet still in the mind... There's a work that has to be done if people are going to be saved. Well, that's not the case. Romans chapter 4, we saw that Abraham was justified without works. God came by with a word of God, convinced Abraham's heart of that. Abraham believed that, and God imputed righteousness as a result of that. And he states explicitly, no work to be done. No words that had to be prayed. No certain prayer. No certain work. But it was by faith. And that was not written for Abraham's sake alone, but for us also. Now, when there is indeed faith, you see, you go back and forth through this book answering every question that could be asked. So it's by faith alone. If a man has saving faith, then a man is justified and why? You don't have to live. You're saying you don't have to have a, a changed life. Not at all. Because this work of God, outside of man's works, the Holy Ghost moves into a man's life, changes his nature, his mind, his thinking, 
and his thought. He is regenerated and made a new creature by the work of God. He's not working to become better. Religion, religion's a flop everywhere you look, trying to make man better. And man today is worse and more evil than he's ever been throughout history. Wicked. Religion does not help man. This salvation of God is not me getting better. This is God working in our hearts and lives. And so we've come down through here, chapter 8. He's highlighting the Spirit. Uh, Anthony quoted, We have not the Spirit, we're none of His. So that Spirit of God that worketh in the mind and in the life of the church, that is the, the down payment, the earnest, the promise of God of redemption unto those that are saved. And if there's no spirit, there's no salvation. And in the church, the Holy Ghost is with them always. He is their uh, guide in the truth and in wisdom. He prevents them from being deceived and led astray from the truth. He convinces them of the truth. When they're suffering, He's their companion in suffering and He is with them always even unto the end of the world. And so we come down to verse 28, 29. So then how then is salvation received? Well, it's by the choice, the election of Almighty God. And so who, whoever He... And let's read verse 30. Moreover, whom He did predestinate, them He also called. Whom He called, them He also justified. Whom He justified, them He also glorified. Now this is all a work of God and it's all by God's direction, His choice, and His sovereign will. Not any choice of man involved. God is sovereign in all that He does. He works in spite of mankind. He works His will and accomplishes His work. And so you see this work of God then, this justification... If a man is justified, now that word means to be declared as innocent or holy, and if we're going to enter into heaven after this life, we're going to have to be justified with God. We're going to have to be declared that our sins have been put away and God has imputed Christ's righteousness upon our account. Without that, we're guilty of the law. There's no way we can enter into heaven. So those that are justified are also glorified. The Holy Ghost has entered into them. Outside of the Holy Ghost dwelling on a man's life, there is no salvation. He's got religion. He's got a work. He's got something he did. But outside of the Spirit of God and the work of God in the heart, he's missing what it takes in order to enter into life. So verse 31, What shall we say then to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, how shall He not with Him also freely give us all things? So, we've already covered this, I know, but just a minute right here. So if God then, who foreknew us, who knew all about us, knew what we were, knew what we would be, if He chose sovereignly, he was not influenced by anybody else. He was not influenced by me. But He sovereignly chose 
to justify the church, then if God is for us in that way, who is going to work against us to cause us to be unjustified? Who's going to overrule God? Who's going to change God's decision? Who's going to step in and say, well, God, what you decide is not right. I'm going to overrule your authority. You know, we got a picture of it in the United States. The Supreme Court, they decide whether things are constitutional or not. By the law, it's become a far greater mess than that in our day, I'm afraid. But they're there to decide what's constitutional, and when they come out with a decision, that covers the whole land, and there's not another court to appeal to. That what they decide becomes the law. And so, God Almighty, as the Supreme Court, but really far above that, His decisions are final, and there's no one else that's going to overrule Him. There's no one else to appeal to. We must be found to be just in God's eyes, and if He chooses to justify, then who can undo the work that God has done? Can that be lost? Can it be undone? Can that work of God be overruled by the devil? Can the church overrule it? Could a preacher overrule God's work? Absolutely not. God's work, I believe he says, forever settled in heaven is the word. Well, his work is also forever settled in heaven. And so, he that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. Now, you go back to the days that the book of Romans was written, and you can find it maybe in other parts of the world. But in this day that Paul wrote this book down, Christians were under great persecution from the Jew, from the Roman government, from the pagan worshipers and the idol makers. You can read it all through the book of Acts. Everywhere they go, there's persecution. There's hatred. Paul's being whipped. He's being arrested. He's being stoned and left for dead. Everywhere you look, there's persecution. And in the mind now, it's, the mind says, well, if God loved you, why would you endure such persecution? That must not be the case. God must not love you. But this is Paul's reasoning here. If God gave His only begotten Son, Jesus, that you could be justified... What more could God give to prove His love for our soul? Could God do any more than that, truthfully? So though Paul's suffering in the flesh, and he says in Corinthians, though our outward man perish, the inward man is renewed day by day. The truth is, God's love, His care, the apple of His eye are His elect, known from before the foundation of the world. So, verse 33, Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. So if God declares someone and justify to render, show, or regard as just or innocent. So if God, the judge, 
the supreme court, the supreme deity, if God says this man is justified through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, then who can lay anything to the charge? Who can come up against God and make any sort of argument? Can, can the devil do that? There's a lot of false pictures painted today by the works of man. What authority does the devil have in the face of God? I believe we've got written evidence of it. Legion, a man that by the book was filled with devils, there were many. When the Lord came, they begged Him for mercy. And have you come to torment us before our time? So there's no authority there. They're not arguing. They were begging for mercy. God is the supreme authority. And if God justifies, know this, there is no one that can lay anything to their charge. If God justifies, how can I be guilty again? How could I be found to be lost again if God has justified me? Now again, remember, the whole work of God, it's more than just a little trip to the altar and dunked in the water. This is the work of God in the heart. And those that are justified are glorified. God's Spirit has indwelled them and made a new creature out of them. They can't go back to sin because God now dwells in their temple. So if God justifies, who shall lay anything to the charge to call in as a debt or demand to bring to account... So the picture's a collection agency. If I pay off my mortgage, if I called today and said I want a payoff quote, and they give me an amount, and I pay that off, and it's paid in full, and they send me the, the, the deed and says this is yours, it's paid for, it belongs to you. And a, can a collection company then call me and say, you owe me money for your place. You know what I can say? Absolutely not. I've got the deed. It's in my house. I'll produce it. I've got the paperwork to show that I've paid it off. I've got evidence that this work has been done. Well, folks, if God, through the sacrifice of Jesus, washes away the sin of man and makes a man to be just and innocent in his sight by the work of Jesus, who then can come and call and say, wait a minute, you still owe this if you're going to be saved. That's what man's doing today. Well, you've got to do this, and you've got to do that. And if you take part in this, then you're really not saved. And all of these works and added things added on to Jesus, the truth is, justification is in Jesus Christ alone and if God justifies, I don't care what you say about me, if God has justified me and I've got the Spirit of God to prove it, who is going to lay anything to my charge? There's not, not a person. The, the, the church can't take that away. The preacher can't take that away. Family can't take that away. That is a work that is finished and complete 
in the Lord Jesus Christ and not in me. Now, if it was a work of me, then I could lose it and I could fall away. But it's not Joseph that justifies. It's God that justifies. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? So then, who is it that's going to condemn man? It's not the devil. The devil doesn't condemn. He's not the judge. There's no man that's the judge. He answers it. It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who maketh intercession for us. So God's the one justifying. And who's that that condemns? It's God again. So if the one that has the power to condemn you justifies you, See, there's, there's no other place and there's no other source of judgment other than God. You know who we need to be right with? You can be right with the church. You can be right with your family. You can be right with the, the workplace. You can be right with your friends around you. Every one of them could get together and say, I believe that this man, that this woman is saved and born again and that does not amount to a hill of beans in God's eyes because they don't justify and they don't condemn. The vote of the church does not justify a man. The opinion of the preacher does not justify a soul. But it's God that justifies and God that condemns. Well, I think I'm saved, and -and so-and-so thinks I'm saved. I must be all right. See, we've missed the whole point. God's the justifier. And those that God justifies, they've got the payoff, and they've got the deed to their house in their possession. God has given them the Spirit that signifies that their debt has been paid and they are justified. And those with a spirit, they cannot be unjustified. It's paid off. The work is done and sealed in the Lord Jesus Christ. But without the spirit, you're just as guilty as you ever was. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died. Yea, rather... That is risen again. So in in Acts, Acts chapter 17, verse number 31, Because He hath appointed a day in the which He will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom He hath ordained, whereof He hath given assurance unto all men, and that He hath raised Him from the dead. So there is, there is a day of judgment that is yet to come. Christ has already come. He has given His life. He has raised from the dead. He has ascended back to the Father. And He is there at the Father's right hand making intercession for them that are saved. But yet to come is a day of judgment. And friends, if there is no day of judgment to come, this is a waste of my time. If there's no payday, then why would I worry 
about being justified. But there is a day of judgment. It's already appointed. Man's not going to move it here nor there. Man's not going to bring it closer. Man's not going to do better and push it farther away. God's appointed the day, and this judgment day is approaching. How's God going to judge the world in righteousness? By Jesus Christ. By the perfect man. We're going to have to measure up to the stature of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, who can do that? Nobody in their self. But if God takes that man and imputes Christ's righteousness upon his life, then would Christ's righteousness measure up to Christ's righteousness? You see, we're saved by the one that's the standard of righteousness. There's no way that the church can fail in the day of judgment. Because the judge has justified us. And I'm not waiting to be justified. Well, maybe at that day, everything will be alright. Without the Spirit of God here, things are not going to be alright in the day of judgment. So back, back to Romans now. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? So now God has loved us. He proved that He loved us by giving His Son for our sins. He went even farther than that, but He predetermined that we would be born in a place where His gospel would reach us. He predetermined that we'd be there. He predetermined that He would call us on such and such a day. And He did so. And He called us. And He brought us to Him. And He changed our life. He changed our mind. He gave us the first fruits of the Spirit. And we've been saved by the love and the grace of God ever since that day. No work of mine. All the work and foreordination of Almighty God Himself. So now who's going to separate me from that love that God's given me in Christ? Is there anybody able to cut the church off from the love of God? See, you heard it preached. Well, if you don't do this, God can't be happy with you. You've got to do this to be acceptable. I'm, I'm just reading from the book. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ. Have you got an answer for that? So we're going to go through a list here. So listen. Shall tribulation, pressure, affliction, or oppression, shall tribulation or distress, narrowness of room, dire calamity, or famine, or persecution, I'm sorry. And that's just exactly what it sounds like. Or famine, to be hungry without food. Or nakedness, no clothes. Or peril, danger, life to be in danger. Or sword, the enemy coming upon us 
to take our life. So as the flesh would say, look at what I'm going through. I must be separated from the love of God. That's exactly the way the devil... You let trouble come and the devil will say, look, God doesn't love you. That's exactly the way he works, is it not? If you've ever been in a place of trouble, the devil's told you that in your mind. Look, he doesn't love you, but you know what? We've got the Word of God. Does tribulation, does distress, does trouble, does that separate me from the love of God? As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep. For the slaughter. That's Old Testament. That's a quote from the Old Testament that the saints of God all through history suffered affliction and many lost their life for their faith in Almighty God. The second man born on the face of the earth was murdered for his faith in the work of Almighty God. Murdered by his brother. And so from the very beginning... Tribulation and distress has laid on the church and we're so blessed and disconnected from it today. But through history you can look at how the church has been persecuted, how that they were bold in all and burned at the stake and threw on griddles and cooked alive. How that men were skinned alive and they were hung on crosses like the Lord Jesus was. How that men have been beheaded and murdered in every way you can think of. And the devil says, look, the Lord does not love His church. But where did they go? Did they suffer? They did suffer. They suffered because of the Lord Jesus Christ. They suffered that His name would be exalted. But after this life, where does the saints of God go? I realize when you look at the temporal, when the temporary is all that you see, it's easy to get wound up and get cast down and be dejected. We just see the God's truth we see right now and you might see ten minutes ahead. That's it. But when this life is over, the rich man that fares sumptuously every day and leaves this world lost, he's going to be in far worse shape than Lazarus who begged for a crumb of bread and had the dogs to lick his sores. I realize that's an extreme picture. I mean, that's the extremes. A, A rich and wealthy man and a man that had absolutely nothing. Can you get more extreme apart than that? But by the the Lord Jesus' words, it'd be better to have absolutely nothing and have the dogs to lick your sores than to be a rich man and die lost. Not that you have to be poor to be saved. I don't believe that in the least bit. But He's given us a picture. And so who shall separate us? In Psalm 103. 103rd Psalm, verse number 15. 
As for man, his days are as grass. As a flower of the field, so he flourishes. For the wind passes over it, and it's gone. The place thereof shall know it no more. But the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting upon them that fear Him. And His righteousness unto children's children. So now the Lord's mercy is forever. But what is man? I mean, if, you've, if you're of any age at all, you can look back to middle school and how quickly that that time goes by. I mean, the truth is, we're grass that's quickly fading. And you know all it takes is a little wind and we could be gone in a moment. Our life is fragile and frail and could be snuffed out as easy as you snuff out a candle. And so the Lord's mercies, though, in comparison, my life's running out. The Lord's mercies never run out. They're everlasting. And after this life, His mercy will still be present. And there's none that can separate us. Nay, this is verse 37. Now he's going to conclude. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him that loved us. So more than conquerors, to vanquish beyond, to gain a decisive victory. This is not a victory where you got to fight and the judges are going to have a, a split decision on who won. They can't come to a unanimous verdict as to who won this fight, who won this war. Like the Vietnam War. Some people say we won. Some people say we didn't. You, you, can't, you can't really prove either case, can you? It's undecisive. But I tell you, the victory that God gives His people is a decisive victory. That everyone that looks at the record, everyone that watches the fight comes to the same conclusion. Boy, that, that one has won without question the fight. So we are more than conquerors through the channel of an act. So the way I think about that is we've got a water fountain. It's probably froze today. I didn't try it. But that water fountain does not have water in it. There's a well out here that goes into the ground. That's where the water comes from. There's a channel. There's a pipe. The water gets from there to there through a pipe. That's the means that that's received. Well, we're more than conquerors. We have a decisive victory, but know this, it's not through what you've done. But there's a channel, there's a means that we have obtained this victory, and it is through Him that loved us. So through Jesus Christ, the church has a victory, and it cannot be lost. It really is this simple. He's either won or we don't know whether he's going to win or not. Has he won? Without question. The record shows that he's won. Well, then how can we lose? No, we're more than conquerors through him that loved us. By the grace of God inside 
of those that are saved and the expectation of that deliverance to come, the church, the born again, can overcome in this life and will, without fail, overcome at the end. Well, you don't know if the church is going to overcome here or not. The Bible tells me that the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. It will remain and be as God directs it and as God commands it until the day that He comes back. See, the church is not built on how strong that man is, how strongly willed that I am. It's not built on or established on whether I'm able to do it or not. But it's God's work, and by the grace of God through Jesus Christ, we can overcome all things that would come our way. Well, boy, that's going to knock them off the foundation. If anything's going to knock them down, this is going to knock them down. I believe we'd have said that about Job as well. But you know, the grace of God allowed him to gain a decisive victory over all that assailed him. In 2 Thessalonians, let's read just one verse and then we'll move on. I'd like to get through the end of this chapter today. 2 Thessalonians, chapter number 1, verse number 7. And to you who are troubled, rest with us. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels. This day is coming. This is the judgment day that's been appointed. In flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God, and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power, when He shall come to be glorified in His saints and to be admired in all them that believe, because our testimony among you was believed in that day. This day of judgment that is yet to come by the Word of God, not by my opinion, not by what I think, but by what's written in the Word of God that was wrote well before I was ever born or thought of among man. God's coming to take vengeance and bring judgment upon all those that are ungodly and obey not the gospel. And it's not going to be for a few minutes. It's not going to be for a day or two, but they're going to enter into, as the Word of God says, everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord. The destruction of those that believe not the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ will never end. And on the flip side of that, those saints of God that believe, they will be received unto God forever and ever in the presence of the Lord to glorify His name for salvation. You know what's going to happen? The church is going to win a decisive victory at the end. I believe Noah most likely endured great mocking for the 120 years that he built the ark. I believe that. But Noah 
Would you say that he gained a decisive victory when God shut him in and the flood came on the earth? My God, you talk about glorified. God glorified His church, the ark. God glorified it above all of man and they were destroyed for their unbelief. And Noah was saved alive. That's a picture of this judgment that's yet to come. Those that are saved and born again, they have an assured, decisive victory already won and purchased in Jesus Christ. And we're more than conquerors through everything that comes in our life. This victory is assured. God's not going to jerk the rug out from under us. For I am persuaded to convince, to assent unto evidence or authority. Paul says, I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So now he's going to go through a great list and he's persuaded principalities, a commencement or a chief authority. So you can look at that as the government. Paul had to face Caesar. Caesar was the leader of the world in that day. Paul had to face him. And Caesar said, you're guilty. We're going to cut your head off. And they did. Did that take away Paul's salvation? Principalities. But let's go back up. Angels. What if the angels of heaven, what if they gathered together and said, these people, they're not worthy to be saved. That's what he says. If we or any other preach any other gospel unto you, let him be accursed. No, I tell you, the angels can't separate us from the love of God. Death or life, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. So we don't have to fear death nor life. Angels, principalities nor powers, things that are in authority, force, miraculous power. That's the meaning of that word. It's dunamis is the Greek word. Same word that dynamite comes from. I know I've said that before, but you think about a stick of dynamite, it's about that big, and what miraculous power that there is in that. You could lay this building down in a moment with the miraculous power in a stick like a candle. It's amazing, ain't it? Well, there's no miraculous power that's able to bring the church down and make them to be guilty before God. Nor things present, nor things to come. What we're going through today, it's not going to cause us to fall out of the love of God. And what we go through tomorrow, well, you don't know what's coming tomorrow. No, but God does. And God wrote down that things to come, whatever's happening today and whatever happens tomorrow, it will not change my status before Almighty God. Nor height, nor depth, 
So there's no place that I can... This, is, I believe, is looking back at Psalms when David wrote, if I take the wings of the morning, or if I make my bed in the belly of the sea, there's no place that we can go to escape God. There's no place John, the apostle, he's going to be excommunicated. He's going to be sent to an island to spend the rest of his days there alone and separate from all of man. But they could not separate him from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. There he is denounced by the religious world and by the government and he's sent to Patmos alone as a punishment and yet when the Lord's day comes, there's John in the Spirit. And what a vision the Lord's going to give him. Height nor depth, nor any other creature. Now, you take that word, and I think we think of dogs and cats and cows, but that's now honest. If you're going to tell me that a dog might come between me and God, that's silly, isn't it? So he's got to be talking about something more than that, wouldn't you say? The devil, where did he come from? He had to, didn't he? He's a creature. He was created by God. All of man, where did man come from? He was created by the hand. God's the only eternal one. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit, they're eternal. But the angels... And the devil and man, all of that's been created by His power. Nothing created can overrule the Creator. You can just remember that. We're going to see plenty more of that in the next chapter. Shall be able, shall be able to be possible, to have ability. None of these things have the ability, nor is it possible for them to separate me. That word means to place room between, to part from, or to go away. So then those that are truly saved, what can separate them from their salvation? What could make me lose the justification that God has given me. And what could happen to me that would tell me that I've fallen from the love of God in Jesus Christ? That's the man says, well, that's come on him because he's sinned and he's fell out of the love of God. You run into great problems when that's the pathway that you're going to go down. Because you've sinned, haven't you? I've sinned. So what level of sin then are you going to say, well, that then, when you cross that line, then you're going to get punished. Well, if you do this sin, then God's going to cut you off. That's silly thinking, wouldn't you say? No. Nothing separates the justified from the love of God that's in Jesus Christ. In John chapter number 10... John chapter 10, verse number 28. 
and I give unto them eternal life. They shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father, which is greater than me, is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. So how secure is this? How am I going to lose what God has given me? There is no, absolutely no way for this to be lost. He says, and I believe it is this simple, I've said this before, I give unto them eternal life. So if I lose it, it wasn't eternal, was it? If I tell you I've got eternal life in the flesh and tomorrow I'm dead, you know that I lied. I did not have what I said. Well, if Jesus says, I've given you eternal life, not in the flesh, in the soul. It's that inward man. So if God says, I've given you eternal life, and I do something tomorrow and I've lost that, then He lied to me. He's not lied. It's not possible that man can lose what God's given him. In Ephesians chapter 1, Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4, According as He hath chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love. See, Jesus says to the disciples, You've not chosen Me, but I've chosen you. Well, here, God's chosen us before the foundation of the world to be holy and without blame before Him in love. How is that possible? Through my works? Am I without blame through my works? Are you without blame through your works? There's no way. There is no way that's possible by my strength or my doing. But this is justified in the Lord Jesus Christ. One more place in Hebrews chapter 7, and we'll hush. We're out of time. Hebrews chapter number 7, some of my favorite Scripture. Verse number 22. By so much was Jesus made surety of a better testament. And they truly were many priests because they were not suffered to continue by reason of death. But this man, because he continueth ever, hath an unchangeable priesthood. So Aaron, Aaron served his priest for X amount of years, and Aaron died. And his son took over, and he served for X amount of years. But all of those Old Testament priests they only had so long that they could go, and then they had to be replaced. But Jesus, He continueth forever. There's not going to be a successor to Him. He's going to be the high priest forevermore. And because of this, wherefore, He is able also to save them to the uttermost that come to God by Him. He is able to save them the uttermost, the farthest reaches. There's not one place 
in the lives of them that are saved that He has not redeemed. He's not missed a corner, seeing He ever liveth to make intercession for them. He's not left His position. Aaron, He's dead and He's gone. The Lord Jesus is still the high priest today and by that power He's able to save and there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God that's in Jesus Christ. Anything on your heart?